What goes into making an iconic building in America? What are the stories and who are the people behind the next generation of architecture? If your work touches the real estate industry in any way, or you're just curious about what goes into one-of-a-kind cities and towns all across our country, join us on the American Building Podcast. In season two, we learn about everything from skyscrapers to single-family homes, from the famous and soon-to-be-famous designers and developers responsible for them. This season focuses particularly on the pandemic and how our buildings will change in response. Our sponsor is the iconic design firm, Michael Graves Architecture and Design. And now your host, award-winning architect turned entrepreneur, Atif Khadr, AIA. This is American Building, and I'm your host, Atif Khadr. I'm the CEO of Redist, a technology company focused on innovative public financing for real estate projects. We are recording from the historic home of world-renowned architect Michael Graves in Princeton, New Jersey. Check out this amazing space for yourself at the Michael Graves Architecture and Design YouTube channel. Now, let's build something. Today, our guest is Lauren Eckhart-Smith. Lauren is the head of design at Allergem Capital Group in Beverly Hills, California. Previously, she held senior roles in real estate at Lincoln Property Group, the Georgetown Company, Bloomberg LP, and IAC. She began her career at Gensler Associates. We will be talking about One Beverly Hills, a mixed-use project in Beverly Hills, California. It includes residential, retail, and hotel, as well as new construction and renovation components. More broadly, we will talk about how large projects like this one can seriously address sustainability, far beyond the hand-waving that we may see in our industry. Thank you so much for being here with us, Lauren. My pleasure. It's wonderful to see you and to be a part of this. I'm very honored to be part of it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for spending your time with us. So a large portion of your career has been spent working on iconic buildings on the owner side, namely the IAC headquarters in New York by Frank Geary and the Bloomberg LP headquarters in London by Norman Foster. Tell us about these projects and what you learned from them. Oh, for sure. I mean, I feel really fortunate to have been lucky enough to work on some of these incredibly iconic projects throughout my career. And really, you know, part of what I've learned is, and and part of really why I got into this industry was to really contribute to the community that these buildings serve. And really raising the level and inspiring others couple of these are, you know, pretty luxurious too, right? And and you think, well, how is that, you know, it's just contributing to, you know, whatever, rich mm-hmm. people and all of that. Really, it's about making people be inspired, pushing boundaries, challenging process. And it's been pretty cool to work with some really iconic leaders as well. So I've been very fortunate. Out of curiosity from the, the two firms, both IAC and Bloomberg, as well as the designers, Frank Geary and Norman Foster, lines that have thought and behavior that were similar, things that were very different amongst them. Tell us, tell us what they were like. Well, that's a really interesting question. I mean, things that are similar, pushing boundaries. Both firms really 
you know, we sort of talked with IAC about being Lewis and Clark in the canoe, that we were mm -hmm. doing something that hadn't been done before. For example, the warped glass panels that are cold warped panels that are on the facade there hadn't been done at that scale. And, you know, they were excited about it. They were challenged by it. They worked very closely with the uh, vendor to come up with something that had never been done before. Same with Lord Foster's team. They just push the boundaries in every single moment on the project, which makes the, pro the process difficult and challenging. But if you're up for it, so much more rewarding. So I, I would say that that's really the, the real thing, that the thread that ties the two firms together. Mm -hmm. Incredibly different, right? Mm -hmm. In terms of their architectural styles. For mm -hmm. sure. Yeah, yeah. You might be interested in knowing that Lewis and Clark's canoe uh, actually was built in Harper's Ferry, West Virginia. And their initial intention before the one that they ended up going with was a collapsible canoe. And this is hundreds of years ago, this idea that you could fold a canoe into a smaller piece and then carry it across when you were no longer on the river. That idea didn't work so well, so they went back to the traditional version. <laughs> Oh, how interesting the comparison then, because I think, and in particular, this folding that you were doing mm -hmm. made me think of, you know, in terms of process, Frank Gehry works very much in models, right? Mm -hmm. And so there was this folding of of different sort of architectural models, the amount of, I mean, just incredible amount of model making that went on and still goes on, I think, in their studio. Whereas Foster's team, they do a lot of incredible incredible sort of renderings and images that they create and create views that really catch. They also build models, but not the same kind of iterative models that uh, Gary Partners does. But that's interesting that Lewis and Clark did the same thing. It's a great, it's a great comparison. Who knew? It is. And I think uh, having interned at uh, Raphael Vignoli's firm and then knowing the Michael Graves firm so well, I've come to realize that there's an entire spectrum of firms and how they interact with physical models. Some use it simply as a means of recording. Some people use it as a method of biz dev, and then some actually still use it as a method of the design process itself. And I think that's probably the richest and the most important one of the three. Yeah, absolutely. And I think both of them do just at different points in the process. Mm -hmm. I've had the pleasure of working with uh, Robert A.M. Stern's office as well, and they mm -hmm still use clay models. And so they very much in a different way than Gary Partners, but very much still use three-dimensional models. And it is inevitable. The Foster team just produced an entire model of the site for our project. Mm -hmm. I've yet to see it in person because of course it's still in London. But <laughs> just being able to take the camera into the views, mm -hmm. you're created by that Right away, you saw three or four things that were like, "Oops, okay, we've got to, we've got to adjust that. We've got to make, mm -hmm. you know, that's not quite what we thought the way it was going to be." And no matter how much experience you have in this industry, you still, even if you can read in three dimensions from a set of architectural drawings, there's just those moments where it, it just isn't replaceable. Doing doing the models, computer models definitely help, but there's something about that tangible sort of three dimensional piece of whatever it might be, wood mm -hmm. or, or paper or phone core, whatever it is mm -hmm. that really helps the process. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So then you move from New York to Los Angeles right before the pandemic started. So talk to us about that decision. Well, it was really about mm -hmm. personal life choices as opposed to kind of all about 
career, although I have to say, you know, what New Yorker doesn't want to move to Los Angeles? I mean, the weather here is <laughs> I can think of one right here. <laughs> <laughs> it, you know, it was an opportunity with, um, with a company that I thought was amazing, mm-hmm. is amazing, um, and it seemed like the right move. You know, we love New York City. I still mm-hmm. love New York City. I'd be happy to go back. But it was just just the moment. And when things kind of got a little, you know, stalled out a little bit with that opportunity, I got introduced to the folks over here. And it mm-hmm. was, you know, sort of we met, we really enjoyed each other's company. And it was, it felt like it was meant to be, which mm-hmm. is really you know, interesting because I ended up moving gosh, five minutes from the site. And the fact that this, you know, I joke that I always was very fortunate to walk to work when I lived Mm -hmm. in New York City. And New York is such a great walking city. And Los Angeles is not a walking city. People drive. And somehow I managed to find this incredible project that was moments from my doorstep. So once again, I walked to work. So I feel pretty fortunate. Uh-huh. And before, just to clarify, before New York, you are from... I'm uh, from Toronto originally. Yeah. And uh, my husband and I decided kind of, you know, we were we were young and thought mm-hmm. New York would be fun and we could, you know, be there for a couple of years. And mm-hmm. it was 20 before we moved on. But part of why it made it easier for us to kind of pick up and leave New York was we didn't have any family there. Mm-hmm. And we'd kind of grown a family there and and certainly friends that have become very dear to us. But it, it makes it a little easier to pick up and move. Um, but it's difficult. And I think challenging yourself in that way to do something that's like a little bit crazy really sort of is exciting. But it's scary because of the ambiguity of what, mm-hmm. what what's going to happen. It wasn't so much about risk. It was more mm-hmm. about the ambiguity of what life is going to be like. But it's been pretty wonderful. So so I think the, the fact that you're Canadian explains why you're such a nice person. Uh, so <laughs> tell me about when you you mentioned meeting Benny Alajim. Uh, how did that first interview go? Like, what was that process like, that decision making? Was it a, a short courtship process or really long? Tell us the details. Well, you know, it was kind of in between. However, all done over virtually, unfortunately, because of it was right in, you know, sort of the very worst part of the pandemic. And Mm -hmm. we've all been quite careful, but really about building a relationship. And I think, you know, I had gotten in touch with Benny and and the team here through relationships that I had in the industry out here. And so over the sort of the courtship, um, we really just were getting to know one another. It's important both directions, right? It's important that I feel like I can contribute and be a part of their community and, and equally as such that they feel the same way about me, but did go really well from the the onset, which is often the case, right? It feels right from the start. And in this case, you actually had, you were living close to the site before the interview process had begun. Is that the reason? I was, yeah. I I was living, I can see the Waldorf Astoria from my apartment. So, you know, just kind of strange Mm -hmm. that that happened, but it did, you know, it sort of falls into the meant to be sort of category, not to Mm -hmm. be too fatalistic, but that's, but that's how, why it felt so much that way. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about the project. Give us an overview of Beverly Hills and of this particular site at the, which is at the intersection of Wilshire Boulevard and Santa Monica Boulevard. That's right. So it's a triangular site that really Mm -hmm. is at the gateway to Beverly Hills Century City is sort of immediately to the west of the site, 17 and a half acres and a 
and really, you know, very close to sort of all the wonderful parts of Beverly Hills, you know, Rodeo Drive and all those famous parts. Um, the Beverly Hills High School is sort of immediately to sort of the, the southeast, I guess. And then there's mm-hmm. another school to the north called El Rodeo. And then it's right on along the western boundary is the L.A. Country Club, which is going to host the uh, U.S. Open in 2023. So it just is this incredible sort of last undeveloped parcel in the city of Beverly Hills. And Beverly Hills is a, a unique, I didn't know this when I, I moved to Los Angeles, and, and maybe I'm the only one, but Los Angeles is kind of made up of smaller sort of cities, if you will. And Beverly Hills has its own mayor and its own community, mm-hmm. and it's run kind of very separately as a school district in part of the LA County School District, but it really is a smaller community. And it really does feel that way when you're here. And so, you know, the kids ride their bikes around in the community and the schools all are, you know, there's two elementary schools, one middle school and one high school. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing that this environment lives within the larger sort of metropolis of Los Angeles. So you're mentioning this uh, local uh, municipal infrastructure. I'm a city planning commissioner and know that entitlements are incredibly complicated, and especially in small, wealthy cities like like Hoboken and small, incredibly wealthy cities, like I would imagine, in Beverly Hills. So how was it working with the, the city and the various other aspects of the municipal government? Well, I'll caveat with what I'm going to say that I joined the team when they were in the throes of this process and really Mm -hmm. towards the tail end, amazingly towards the tail end of that process, because they got through it in about 11 months. And I'll sort of give you some insight as to why. But dealing with the city of Beverly Hills, I mean, you know, probably similarly to some of those other uh, cities that you mentioned, a really incredible group of individuals that are very passionate mm-hmm. about their community, have lived here for the majority of their lives, and really were vested in in kind of making sure that this last piece, that, uh, you know, and big project, right, for the city of Beverly Hills, it's one of the largest projects that they've ever done, if not the largest and really, because it was so important as the kind of entry into from the one side of the site, they wanted to make sure that it was setting the precedent for mm-hmm. future development and also, you know, kind of doing all the things that they would hope it would aspire to. So there was a there was a lot of involvement, mm-hmm. all of which, by the way, was during COVID. So it was all again done virtually, which was really interesting. I think it, it helped in some regards and it, and it made it more challenging in others. What we found in Hoboken is that by doing at least city planning commission meetings by Zoom, it really encouraged a much wider swath of people to participate, particularly younger, particularly parents, particularly people of different demographic categories than before. Although I'd have to say I I really enjoyed the Oscar-worthy performances during the public interest section, different presentations, and I'm sure they probably were the case uh, there as well. So the the site has had many lives before this particular one. It used to be a nursery and a Robinson Mays department store. The Chinese developer Wanda Group uh, was working with Richard Meyer on a development plan here. Let's dig into that and how Allergem a capital group gained control and what they did once they did. 
so on for the Wanda project, which was a Richard Meyer designed mm-hmm. project, and it was a little, it was low rise across the site. They actually got, interestingly, were worked for years and were able to get the entitlements for the amount of condo and hotel room and kind of the FAR for the site itself. Mm-hmm. And we piggybacked on those entitlements to actually get the approvals that we did. But they did the development, you know, and I guess, you know, they ended up wanting to sell in and around 2018. And that's when Benny with uh, Kane International stepped in and acquired the site. So pretty wonderful timing on their part. But it definitely lived additional lives. And then, of course, started its life mm-hmm. as the nursery that, you know, when we get to talking a little bit about the future of this site, mm-hmm. we'll harken back to this, but that started as the nursery for the majority of the kind of large trees that now line the streets in Beverly Hills. And that's one of the distinctive, of course, everybody knows about the large homes, etc. Mm-hmm. But there's also these incredible trees and a number of them that are kind of these heritage incredible assets to the community that's here. And so it holds a special place for that reason as well. Out of curiosity, so I mean, large older trees in like the smaller East Coast cities like Princeton, where we are now, are typically oaks and elms and chestnuts. Are there more tropical trees? Are there palm trees in Beverly Hills? Is that the trees that you would oh, see? Oh, absolutely. In fact, one of the sort of botanical gardens that we're doing in our larger botanical garden is a palm Grove, but absolutely. And there's there's a number of the streets that are lined by these incredible palm trees. I mean, it, they're, gosh, they just, they tower. I mean, it's mm-hmm. really wonderful. And of course, the Beverly Hilton, the iconic Beverly Hilton, had always had these two incredible palm trees right on the site. So, mm-hmm. and the site itself is lined by a number of palm trees. So yes, there are there's not as many oaks or elms, but, they're, <laughs> but there's definitely, uh, and that's part of, you know, we'll talk about the botanical gardens, I'm sure. sure, later, but part of why Rios was so such a great choice in terms of landscape architect, because they know the botany of this area so well, but it is so, so different than other parts of the world, for sure. So talk to us then about the design strategy. So Richard Meyer was the original designer, and then Allergem Capital Group brought on Norman Foster. Rios was a landscape designer. What was the overall design strategy in terms of the site, the architecture, the interiors? And how far along are you in that process now? Okay. So the team here did a competition, which, in fact, Foster's won. Mm-hmm. And part of what was the inspiration for choosing the foster team was this concept of kind of taking the green carpet, if you will, Mm -hmm. the golf course and running it down through the site towards the Waldorf Astoria, which in terms of the site, the the kind of point of the triangle, if you will, it is exists the Waldorf Astoria, which is arguably one of the best hotels in the country, which Mm -hmm. Benny, of course, owns. Right beside that is the Beverly Hilton. And so this greenscape, the idea was that this greenscape would run across that entire sort of area. And in order to kind of create enough open space to create this botanical gardens, Foster had this incredible idea that we would go up instead of going out like the Richard Meyer proposal did which meant that we would have to get entitled for a lot more height than is anywhere else in Beverly Hills. 
And part of why the argument for entitling the site with this height is because it, it sort of backs Century City. And we're right near where there's incredibly high buildings relative to, to anything that's in Beverly Hills. And that it kind of creates that transition between Century City and the height there and massing that's there. And then kind of eases down into Beverly Hills with this incredible botanical gardens now, Mm -hmm. if you will. And all of that was what sort of the Foster and Partners vision, which really came from Lord Norman Foster and Mm -hmm. a couple of partners there, Armstrong and David Summerfield. And they just really you know, created a vision that not only sold Benny and the Allergem team Mm -hmm. but and, and Keen International, but the community as well, that this suddenly become not just sort of a a for-profit development, but a gift to the community. So that's sort of where that transition happened, bringing Foster and Partners. And in that whole team too, I, I'd be very amiss to not mention Gensler, because Gensler okay. was part of all of those conversations, a lot of the great ideas and that everything were kind of catalyzed by Gensler and brought along. And they've had a relationship with not only Los Angeles, I mean, they do an incredible amount of work out here, but also with Allergen and having designed the Waldorf Astoria. So let me ask you this question. What was the prompt that you gave Norman Foster and what's the overall scope of this project? Because there's uh, several hotels that are encompassed, new construction, renovation. There's a lot going on in this triangular site. Well, I think that, the, you know, the prompt really is about is really about creating iconic design, which, of course, mm-hmm. Foster is all about iconic design. Mm-hmm you know, sort of this idea of uncompromised luxury and healthy living as a way of life. So those were kind of the the three big sort of pillars of what this development aspired to do. But sort of tactically in terms of what we wanted to achieve and and deliver on the site, if you will, so it's sort of the Mm -hmm. economic backer to all of this, you know, wonderful stuff, really was building 300 residences on the site in and Mm -hmm. around 300 residences. We are building, you know, roughly just under 50 hotel rooms as well, a seven-star luxury hotel on the site as well. Renovations to the Beverly Hilton. Of course, the Beverly Hilton hosts not only um, the Golden Globes, Mm -hmm. but a number of other really sort of renowned conferences, et cetera. So renovations to that facility as well, providing a new conference center and Mm -hmm. new pool facilities and other things. Of course, this botanical garden that I just mm-hmm. spoke about, which was inspired by them. But now, you know, suddenly, you know, what's the greatest thing is when you present something like that as an architect, having been on the other side, is that mm-hmm. suddenly that, you know, then you own it. The owner owns it. And over 2,000 parking spaces, which is a big deal on the site, which all sit underneath this kind of green carpet, which is actually sitting on top of a podium. Okay. So there's a major underground construction then going on. Major underground construction. It's actually three levels of parking below grade and a whole Mm -hmm. bunch of infrastructure work that needs to be done to supply utilities to the site. And then a a lot of back of house. Mm -hmm. So what allows, you know, that also allows kind of us to link all the various buildings on the site that I just mentioned. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there is a private drive that runs between Wilshire and Santa Monica that's Mm -hmm. called Merv Griffith Way that is used by the local community and was very important to the local community. And so actually the Botanical Garden bridges over top of that, of that street Mm-hmm. And so there'll be sort of a sort of akin to the Central Park 
mm-hmm. tunnels that exist is is kind of the inspiration that the Lord Foster sort of put in front of us. It's high. It's a high inspiration, but nonetheless the idea. But that was very important to the community, and in fact, they, you know, they were very good at charging us with making the project better and adding bike lanes to that mm-hmm. private drive, and so we did. So in terms of the focus of such a monumental project like this, there are the incredibly beautiful buildings, but some of the most challenging parts of major projects are actually the infrastructure and the underground work. So in New York and New Jersey, one of the biggest concerns is flooding and making sure that water doesn't come into underground construction. And I'm guessing a similar challenge is making sure that buildings are prepared for earthquakes and other seismic issues. How did you guys think about the biggest challenges for the underground and the, the not so sexy parts of your building? Well, you're right about all of that is what I would say. And I, I actually think it is sexy. I'm, ah, I'm, okay. I'm a sort of real estate and construction <laughs> yeah. because I think that stuff below grade is super interesting. But it's really, you know, the challenge is not necessarily sort of just looking at what code is going to require of you, mm-hmm. but being really smart to sort of challenge yourself to sort of say, well, what is the best way we should be approaching this for this project? And what is the level that we really need to be designing to in order to make sure that our residents are safe, that our guests are safe, and that their property is protected? And so we're working through all of that to try and You asked earlier, what stage are we in? We're sort of in the phase of design development, which we all know well. And so we're continuing to kind of challenge ourselves, even though sometimes at this phase, those kind of questions about resiliency and being ready for anything and having lived through, personally lived through Sandy and September 11th and that crazy Mm -hmm. power outage that happened in 2003, that, you know, these things do happen, right? It's like if there's a 30-year earthquake, like, okay, that may very well happen. So what do we need to do in order to make sure that, so we're we're really going through and challenging and not just, you know, sort of looking at what the code is going to require, trying to make sure we're doing the right thing throughout the project. Excellent. So talk to us about the major materials that you are using throughout the site and how you are planning to mitigate supply chain problems that are plaguing major construction projects all across the United States right now? Well, first of all, we're being smart to hire smart people, right? (laughs) That's not my expertise for sure. But we have hired AECOM to be our guide in that way. And of course, they're a huge international firm that's really helping advise us. And they've got a team of people that are looking into all of this. But we're also being smart about thinking about pre-purchasing. We're being smart about thinking about design build and where and when that will make sense to and what trades it'll make sense to to actually engage in that way on the project. And just kind of going into it eyes wide open, we we also benefit from it's a big project. It's a long schedule, mm-hmm. right? And not to sort of push things off. And we're not, I'm not at all because it's there's there's not enough time to do any of this. Mm-hmm. But hopefully, and maybe this is me being just overly optimistic, things may be better in a couple of years when we're actually, you know, sort of really starting to procure materials. But in the meantime, we're trying to be as as sort of proactive as we can about about all of that. Is there any particular material or system or equipment or product that you're worried about? Or at this point, 
nothing really stands out. Well, I'll tell you me personally, I'm worried about everything, right? I always, <laughs> you know, because on these jobs, it's always something that you didn't anticipate. That's why it mm-hmm. makes it interesting, right? That's why we do this kind of thing is like, you didn't expect that your lighting manufacturer was going to go out of business, or you mm-hmm. didn't anticipate that someone was going to go on strike. And so, you know, we can do all of this, but you know, on a project as big as this, that you have to be ready to adapt and have to have the team that kind of is excited and challenged by, okay, now what? Mm-hmm. How are we going to deal with this challenge? That said, of course, you try to plan for every eventuality. It's just that knowing that that there's still going to be something that comes up that's that's a challenge anyway. Understood. So I'm going to take a break here to let our listeners know that we will be having the fabulous Alda Lai on the show next month. Alda is an architect and with her firm focuses on retail interiors, uh, particularly for startups. She's done uh, multiple projects for The Wing, the women's co-working space provider, and TIA, a women's healthcare network. Subscribe to the podcast at AmericanBuildingPodcast.com so you don't miss out on a single episode. Redis helps to unlock public financing for commercial real estate. Check out this new venture-backed technology company at redist.us. So let's go a little bit bigger picture on this project. What does sustainability mean to you, Lauren, on such a monumental project? Well, me personally, I just think that it has to be part of our DNA. Right. It has to, it's our responsibility as developers and as, you know, sort of professionals that we really need to do everything that we can to make sure that we're creating an environment. We want this project to last for as long as it can last. I'd say 100 mm-hmm. years is probably longer than that. And what do we need to do to set it up in a way that's going to contribute to the community that it serves as opposed to kind of steal from it. And so, you know, all of that, of course, wasn't my idea. That's what really was part of the DNA of this project. And part of why it appealed to me to be part of this team is because, you know, they really feel that it's it's very important. And it's mm-hmm. very important, not just for serving the community, but for the folks that are going to live here. The idea is, is that, you know, you will be healthier having lived here. And it's not just because there's going to be a big, huge, you know, sort of gym and club and (laughs) all of those kind of things that you can participate in that, you know, personally, but making sure that you're exposed to as best that the environment around Los Angeles can provide. So there are a lot of terms that are used in sustainability, and they involve lots of acronyms. So there's LEAD, there's WELL, etc. How do you compare them? And do you actually focus on something bigger than just name sort of recognition on, on the projects you work on? Well, it's really interesting you to ask that question, because I feel so fortunate to have worked on these projects. And, you know, sort of, I've been lucky enough to go from project to project throughout my career. Mm-hmm. And every time I say, that is the best project I've ever worked on. I'm never going to work on a better project. That's it. It's that, you know, and it just seems like there's another one coming along. And what Mm -hmm. I have to say is on every single one of these projects, been lucky enough to work with people that believe that sustainability is a part of the DNA of the project. 
Um, the Bloomberg project was sort of the highest rated BRIAM. And that was because of the fact that we were doing, we were going to do everything that we possibly could to make sure that the project was right and that did all of the the right things from a sustainability perspective that we could. And then mm-hmm. the certification came afterward. And sometimes I've been lucky enough to work on projects where we just do what's right, but we don't necessarily go ahead and get the certification. I think the certification is important because it gives acknowledgement to those organizations, as well as it gives folks an idea of what the barometer is mm-hmm. for development. But what is more important is that we do it anyway. Right. And that we source appropriately, that we are smart about our emissions, that we are smart about where we're getting everything and that we're sort of setting up the whole MEP system to be appropriate for the environment. Cool. So let's talk a little bit about one of those uh, systems, which is the heating system. How did you approach that particular aspect for this huge project? So again, I can't say I personally did it because it was already (laughs) underway before I got here. Of course. But part of the, so there's a central plant Mm -hmm. for the heating system for the entire development. We are contemplating and, and hopefully going to implement a geothermal system as well throughout the site. And so it really was sort of that centralized system not only delivers kind of the best environment to the residents, but also has a smaller impact on the environment. And then from an electricity perspective, are there renewables, any solar systems? How are you approaching that? Well, there is, we are going to use photovoltaic panels as much as we can throughout the site. And we're going to source renewable energy as our source through our utilities. But one of the other things that we're doing is that there is no gas on the site. So there's no natural gas on the site whatsoever, Mm -hmm. all electric. So all of the appliances, all the fireplaces, all the everything are all going to be electric throughout the site. So help me understand, generally from the perspective of someone that likes to cook, gas ranges are often considered superior to electric ranges because of the heat, the range of heat that you can get. Have there been advances with electric ranges to make them that much better than before? Absolutely. And a number of the top chefs are really, um, or at least I understand, are starting to convert and starting to use only electric. Mm-hmm. But we're working very closely with a number of appliance manufacturers that we will be sourcing to that are really coming up with some amazing advancements in this regard. So it's going to be exciting because we'll be implementing kind of really what we think is next, right? That we'll all start. Because I I like you cook. I love gas Mm -hmm. when I cook. I love the kind of ability to turn it on and it's full blast right away. Mm -hmm. But there really is some incredible induction cooking from all the best appliance manufacturers that you can think of. What you might be interested in knowing is the city of New York is considering legislation to ban new natural gas hookups for large commercial properties in the city of New York, uh, which would be utterly transformation. That is leapfrogging probably five to 10 years in our industry's evolution. Well, and that's exactly right. And that's why, again, we're sort of trying to think ahead what's coming. It's it's really interesting to hear that New York is doing that. And, and we've been trying to do that as much as we can as well as sort of anticipating what is coming, what's going to be coming in the next 10 years. And we, we actually believe that, that is, that's going to happen soon. 
And I think a lot of it is on the, or is the responsibility or is because of changes in legislators. So I think that particularly with Kathy Hutchell becoming the governor of New York, that was one particular drive for her. And I'm excited to see what the new city council in New York City will be able to deliver in that regard. Actually, curiosity, do you consider yourself a New Yorker since you were there for 20 years? Oh, my God, of course. How can you not? Once a New Yorker, you know, you can't <laughs> a New York, but you can't take the New York out of the girl. I mean, of course I do. How can I not? It's the most amazing city, for sure. I just want to make sure you hadn't changed your loyalties by moving to the West Coast. <laughs> oh, that's hard. <laughs> <laughs> I'm bilingual, as it may be. <laughs> so uh, one of the other major aspects of concern or interest on such a large site in a relatively dry environment is water use. Talk to us about the strategies for water use on your property. Well, so in terms of the botanical gardens, we Mm -hmm. are, all of the irrigation will be coming from our gray water system. And we are recycling 100% of our gray water, and we are going to be using it for all of the water features, of which there are many Mm -hmm. on the site, including some ponds and waterfalls and things like that. And so that's the intent, because we really didn't want to be a, we'll be a a net net add to the community, as opposed Mm -hmm. to really, you know, taking water from a community and an environment where it's really a coveted natural resource, for sure. And then in terms of water use for the buildings themselves, the units, are there aspects such as uh, low flow fixtures or other key plumbing items that will be part of this overall decision process? Of course. That's all part of how we'll be approaching, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, we'll be doing everything and above and beyond sort of in terms of sort of our MEP system Mm -hmm. relative to that. And we're actually hopefully going to be using and customizing some fixtures um, that will be not only, you know, aesthetic and wonderful, but all of the low flow and kind of sustainably sensitive fixtures that we can. And it's difficult to balance that with luxury, right? Mm -hmm. But the hope is, is that everyone understands that this is part of, you know, sort of the approach to healthy living and healthy Mm -hmm. environment that is one Beverly Hills. I think what is a really interesting idea is, does luxury have to mean excess? Does luxury have to mean ostentatious? I don't think it has to. I don't think it does. No, I totally agree with you. And part of what is, when you think about this, sort of having a botanical garden and being able to live in an environment that, and that that garden actually, which I didn't mention kind of, Um, And when you see images of the project is really being brought up into the residences and Mm -hmm. all of these residences have this incredible outdoor terrace. And so the idea is like you are immersed in this kind of botanical garden environment. Mm -hmm. Isn't that the definition of true luxury, right? I mean, being able to be outside in a wonderful environment that hopefully, you know, there'll be birds and flowers and bees and all of those wonderful things, but yet you're Mm -hmm. in a big urban center. That to me is the definition of luxury. Mm -hmm. And I think the reality is that that definition is changing because of a desire for more sustainability as you've been describing the episode, but there's also this other issue, which is climate change. So let's take an even broader perspective. So, for example, in the New York area, New Jersey, a luxury wood flooring 
suppliers or a friend of mine, he's mentioned that he is now recommending to developers and investors to consider uh, flooring choices other than hardwood. So namely, for example, engineered flooring. The reason being that engineered flooring has made a lot of advances and it's a much more stable material in terms of expansion and contraction than hardwood. The issue being that the humidity of the environment in New York and New Jersey has drastically changed over the past several years because of climate change. And now it is not a responsible choice to use hardwood flooring, even though this material has been used for hundreds of years in this particular climate. Another probably even more significant issue is the potential danger of building underground because of flood risks, um, both in New York and New Jersey. And now that's a particular part of the equation. So now in a place like Southern California, which is increasingly prone to swings of temperature and also fire, how do you fire risk? How do you plan for the near term when you are building such a, a monumental project that takes so long to build, particularly knowing that there are such drastic changes to the world around you? Wow. Well, it's a very interesting subject. Well, first and foremost, as you sort of mentioned all the finishes, and, mm -hmm. and we're kind of not there yet on the project. We're starting to talk about it, but we will be approaching it a lot of the way that you're, you sort of mentioned. I do think as a profession, we have to get away from stealing from their environment. It just is, you know, sort of going to these old growth forests, which we don't do as much. But, you know, I sort of think about the stone in the same mm -hmm. way, right? We go to these mountains in Italy and mm -hmm. carve out these incredible pieces of stone. They're gorgeous, right? Mm -hmm. And then they're installed for, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. Mm -hmm. And then they end up in landfill. Mm -hmm. And how do we sustain that? We can't, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm not just saying that we're not going to use stone on this project. Of course, we will use some stone. But it's being mm -hmm. smart and responsible about where you're sourcing that and, and how you're using it. To the broader question in terms of kind of the environment and what kind of the risk profile here in Southern California is, we certainly do think about fire. Mm -hmm. We certainly do think about the kind of risk of earthquake and seismic risk. And many of the other things that we worry about are, are kind of being addressed through sort of our sustainable practices and relative to kind of the water usage that I mentioned earlier and being responsible as it relates to that and recycling our water. And in terms of our energy usage, that trying to be as environmentally conscious as we can, as I mentioned, mm -hmm. we're hoping to do the geothermal and, and we do have a thermal energy storage as well so that we're being smart about when we're, we're not loading the, the grid at the time of peak load. Mm -hmm. Beverly Hills is this wonderful, incredible place, this microclimate. Mm -hmm. Even in the city of Los Angeles, our environment is very temperate. Even if you go sort of 10 to 15 miles away in the summertime, you'll find that the temperature spikes up sort of, you know, 10 to 20 degrees, depending on the day. And that's because we're surrounded by a desert. Mm -hmm. And so how do you, you know, even though we're in this wonderful environment, that we're being responsible to that broader community. And we're very conscious of that. Excellent. So on that note, I want to say thank you so much for joining us today on the American Building Podcast, Lauren. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure and, of course, an honor and wonderful to meet you as well. Thank you so much. So listeners, if you want to hear the behind the scenes stories 
of how iconic buildings in our country were designed and built. Subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google, Anchor, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Uh, Rate and review us on iTunes to help us reach a wider audience. And please follow us on Instagram at American Building Podcast. We all know real estate is a tough industry to make it. So how can professionals stand out and make a name for themselves in today's world? Hear from me, the team, and Michael Graves and Redist and many of our spectacular guests, just like Lauren, on what we did to make it where we are. Grab our exclusive guide, Seven Tips on How to Stand Out in Your Field at AmericanBuildingPodcast.com. Finally, we live in the richest country in the history of humankind. We must reach out beyond the boundaries that we see and the boundaries that we create in order to help build homes and communities. Today, Lauren and I have made donations to Girls Inc., which supports the educational and life goals for girls in challenging environments. I encourage you, our listeners, to support their worthwhile work as well. My name is Atif Kader, and this has been American Building.